What's up, church? I'm sitting in this chair because I'm getting old. And the older I get, the more that I'm in pain. Um, so here, just a quick story. Uh, last night, we watched a movie, 10.30, kids are in bed. And you're like, okay, where's he going with this? Um, so we... <clears throat> So there, we have this 20-year-old couch, and uh, it's one that I found in a state cell many years ago, but it's got this little lever where it's, the chair kicks out, and you can prop your feet up while you're watching the movie. The problem is, once you prop it out, it won't go back in. So like over the last handful of really days, I would just kind of flip the couch on its back and then push the thing in and flip it back up. Okay, sounds like a whole lot of work. You're like, just get a new couch. But I'm cheap. Uh, but last night, I put the kids to bed. I'm like, I got to put that thing back in, you know. And so I decide that instead of flipping the couch on its back, I'm going to I'm just going to pick it up with my hands and I'm going to push in with the other hand. And when I did so, this, this like jolt of lightning went through my back and uh, I'm sitting here before you today um, in humility, recognizing that God is sovereign and in control and that this body is fleeting and passing away. Um, and it is actually, I think, very timely as a result of our message today. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Romans chapter 8. We're going to talk about life in the Spirit uh, versus life in the, the, the flesh. Now, before we dive into the message and we talk about all the, the good stuff, uh, I just want to uh, also take just a couple of moments and just share a little bit about my week. Uh, this, this week started out um, really kind of ended with our fin, feather, and fur, which was a great success. Uh, best we can tell, about 30 people trusted in Christ, and so we're starting the follow-up process. Uh, we did church uh, together last week, and then Monday, Tuesday, our staff heads out of town for a little retreat, uh, which was really good. Uh, my heart is full. It was an encouraging time away. Last year, we tried to do our retreat, got canceled because of COVID, rescheduled, canceled again. Finally, we just throw up our hands. We're like, hey, we're, it's not going to happen this year, and so it happened this year. It was just an incredible reminder to me um, of the people that I work with, um, and just how, how much I love them, and, and how special they are to me and to my family. And it was just a great time just to, to reflect on the goodness of God, the kindness of God, but it's also a time for me to be convicted, convicted of some areas that I've become a little lazy and slothful, some areas that I need to grow just personally, uh, some areas I need to grow professionally, uh, some other areas I just need to grow as a husband and father. And so it was just a good time of reflection. Uh, we, we come back into town, um, then the this, this storm kind of blows in, and so I find myself working from home over the, the next handful of days, which is really nice because it gave me more time to do things that I don't get to do, like read and, and study a little deeper. And it's just really refreshing, and it was just a great time with my family, a great time to, for my heart to be encouraged. And so I'm here this morning with a full heart and a broken body. And I pray that that's how we leave it. I pray that today when we walk out of this room, I pray that that's what you would be reminded of, a full heart and that you have a broken body. Um, and just the, the promises that come with that and the, the, the things that we have to be paying close attention to. Before we get into that, uh, I, I do want you to know when we go to staff retreat, the first three hours of staff retreat is me putting them through a ringer. Um, it's just the most satisfying time of my year, Okay. <laughs> Um, and so what it involves is sending them across three counties, literally maybe four, depending on which direction they choose to go. And they could do anything from um, get arrested to, um, yes, that's true. They could, you know, hey, get arrested um, to, now here's the deal. 
on purpose, like to go and say, hey, you know, it's for a scavenger hunt, okay? And so that's what we do. We put them on a scavenger hunt, and they could be singing uh, the national anthem with some stranger somewhere. Um, They could be saying the Pledge of Allegiance with a principal across the county somewhere. They could be trying to figure out this random historical marker that's somewhere in our county that you've never seen, uh, but I found. And, And so it's just this huge quest, and they're all weighted in terms of points, and they have no idea which one is is the worst uh, worth the most points, and so um, it's it's pumping gas for strangers to t- to taking pictures with the beaver at Bucky's. It could just it's a wide range of stuff. But here's the we put a little clip together of a few things they did do, and so we just want y'all to check it out before we get going. One fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish, black dog. Oh my goodness! Oh, what's happening? Oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! Amazing! Who knew? One fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish, black fish, blue fish, old fish, new fish. A pledge allegiance to the flag. United <laughs> States. What are you scene where they get stuck in it, Final Destination or whatever. <laughs> All of a sudden their head is somehow out their skylight. This is so scary! Some are sad, and some are glad, and some are very, very bad. And uh, I think the, um, I, I think the Slick Puppies are the team that lost. And what was the team that won? The Mexican Rangers won. That's it. So Mexican Rangers. <laughs> the slick puppies you will see at the end of this year, um, and, and you'll, you'll see how they pay up for the rest of our time together. It will be worth seeing. We'll invite you to be a part of that. What is it? Swift. Swift. I think they, t- they texted me wrong, and it just stuck. Yeah. <laughs> yes, they weren't swift. They were slick. So here we go. We're going to dive in Romans chapter 8. Now look, as we do Romans chapter 8, 
I've kind of come up with a list, kind of help you understand what Romans 8 is about, about things that do not jive together, okay? So like you have things that don't jive together, um, like maybe you and your mother-in-law or something like that. You got oil, water's a good example. If you've been to a fireworks show, you know, and you have a dog along, they don't like that. So dogs and fireworks don't jive together. But here's my top 10 list. We're going to start with number 10. We're going to work all the way down. You may not agree with the list. That's okay. But uh, th- this, is, this is the top 10 things that do not jive in my world. Here we go. Love and ego is number 10. Okay? They, just don't, they don't go together. Summer and school <laughs> don't go together. Number nine. Number eight, pizza and pineapple. They do not go together. You can argue it. They might in your world, but in Brand's world, they don't go together. Number seven, toothpaste and orange juice. You all agree with that one? Okay, good. Because I've got a better number one. Apple and Microsoft. Okay, if you work on an Apple computer, you know they don't go well with Microsoft. Okay, you can feel the same song. If you're a Samsung user, you're like, I don't, okay. Okay, here's here's number five, a newborn and sleep. They don't go together. Okay, here we go. Number four, the media and honesty. Okay, yep. Here we go. Number three, Mexican food and tight pants. (laughs) Don't go together in my world, okay? Number two, me and exercise. Okay, and then here's the drum roll, please. Number one thing that does not go together, the Cowboys and Super Bowls. (laughs) Yeah, go ahead. On both campus, go ahead. Yeah, we can get... Yeah, if you want to boo me off stage, you can, but listen. Okay, so that's my top 10 things that don't go together, but that's what Paul in Romans 8 is talking about. He's talking about a life in the Spirit, and he goes, there's a couple things that don't jive. He goes, a life in the flesh and a life in the Spirit, they don't go together. So just as oil and water don't go together, cowboys and Super Bowls don't go together, apparently, life in the flesh, life in the Spirit does not go together. And that's what we're going to talk about over our next handful of minutes together. So in Romans chapter 8, verse 5, through 11, and we're going to walk through this whole idea of life in the flesh and the Spirit. Um, if you have a Bible, um, hopefully you're there. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to bless you with one on either campus. Uh, today, you can simply go to Connection Point. We'll have a team member that would love to get you a Bible that you can read every day and discover God's Word for yourself. But in verse 5, Paul says, For those who live according to the flesh set their, their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And he gives you these two ideas. He goes, there's the life of the flesh, and then there's the life of the Spirit. Now, real quickly, when you see the word flesh, um, the word flesh is the word of the Greek sarx, um, S-A-R-X, and it literally means a handful of things. It could mean life in the flesh, like skin and bone, mortal man. That's a great way if you see flesh. It can mean the same idea of a carnal um, idea, like a, a, the flesh of a human, the flesh of an animal. But in this particular context, when you see flesh, it's, it's one of the, the other areas, and that is a life that is set um, in opposition to God. It's the idea of the nature of man derived from the Garden of Eden that is set itself up against God's holy standard. So when you see the idea of a flesh here, the flesh means mortal man. That's true. Uh, It means skin and bone and flesh. That's true. But what it also really means is because you are mortal and because you are of skin and bone and because you have been born of flesh, it's the idea that David says in Psalm 51.5 where he says, Surely I was brought forth... uh, in the womb, in iniquity. 
So he talks about that he was conceived in iniquity in his mother's womb. That's what King David said about himself. That's the idea. That from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, when they sinned against God, Adam and Eve set themselves in opposition against God's holy and perfect standard. They have lived a life of rebellion. And everyone since then, born of the flesh, a seed, man and woman, has been born in iniquity and therefore opposed or in opposition to God because their life was born in the flesh. That's what Paul is saying. So he says, those who live according to the flesh, which means the old nature, the nature of really the most natural part of man, which is sin and opposition against God. He goes, those are the people who've set their minds on the things of the flesh. So those who live in the flesh, they set their minds on things of the flesh, which means they think about how to make themselves king. They, they in some ways, think about how they would set themselves up as a queen. In, in essence, what the, Paul is saying, he goes, if you live a life in the flesh... He goes, then you're the the king or the queen of your own domain. You think about what is right for you. You think about what feels good for you. You literally root your life up in selfishness. Here uh, lately, you've heard lots of talks about the U.S. and Russia and so many other things. And, And all of those things, though, I am not privy to them, and I could not have a conversation about that because I haven't read much on it. What I will tell you is this. The way that foolish men go to war is because of selfishness. And selfishness root is, is really the flesh. Our flesh is selfish, and when it's selfish, it is self-imposing opposition against God. And that's what it is. And so Paul says, when you live according to the flesh, you set your mind on the things of the flesh. But when you live according to the Spirit, then you set your mind on the things of the Spirit. So there's a difference between the flesh and the old nature and the spirit, which is a new nature. I think about 2 Corinthians chapter 5, when Paul encourages the church of Corinth. And he says, listen, you and I, um, we have a new creation. We've, we've been born again. And he goes, the old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. Now, when you think about that, it means that, that you and I, at some point, if you're living according to the, the flesh... Um, you realize that, that this is not a way that, that brings about life and peace and joy. And so at some point, you lay down that life and you say, Lord, would you come and would you crucify that old life and make me new? That's what Paul wrote to the, the church of Galatians in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, when he just says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is I, it is I that no longer live. That's what he means. He goes, the old nature, the flesh, the sin nature has to be crucified, has to be killed, has to be stricken and cut off so that the new life, the life in Christ, the inner being of man can be renewed. That happens when Christ steps in. Um, There's a guy named uh, Mark Bubeck who wrote in a book many years ago called The Adversary. And this is what he talks about in terms of the flesh. There's a quote that I want you to just see. He says, the flesh is a built-in law of failure. It's making it impossible for the natural man to please or serve God. God um, cannot be served, and he goes on and says, it is a compulsive inner force that's inherited from man's fall, which expresses itself in general and specific rebellion against God and his righteousness. The flesh can never be reformed or improved, And the only hope for escape from the law of flesh is its total execution and replacement by a new life in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So the idea is that if you're born in the flesh, a seed from a mother and a father, you have been brought forth in iniquity. You're a sinner. And you cannot improve upon that flesh by going, you know what, I'm just going to sin less. Because the problem is that legal, the legal demands of God is that you would be sinless. So the perfect standard in the heavenly realms is not that, that God would equate to you and I to be less sinful than some people. The reality is the perfection of heaven is that there is no sin. Because God, our perfect heavenly Father, has never sinned. That means He's never thought, said, or did anything to break His own standard of living. The problem with that idea, too, is that because He's perfect, it means anything less than perfect or that's been conceived in the flesh, in the mortal rim, will not ever enter into heaven upon your own standard. And the thought process among us as humans is to go, you know what, I'm just going to figure out a way to work my way up to heaven. The problem is, is you can never work your way up to perfection, can you? And here's the deal. If you can't work your way up to perfection, that means that you can't live with God forever unless he makes a way. And the way he makes a way is that he, God, sends his son the form of a servant, to be holy in every way, but to come among earth and identify with us in human flesh, taking on the form of a servant, humbling himself, becoming obedient, even to death, death on the cross. And he does that so that he can cover over sinful man and identify with us. See, the point is, is that we have not become sinless And in our flesh, we're still crucified in that. We're dead in our flesh, but Christ covers us when we submit to his way. That's what Paul is saying. He goes, look, you have a choice. Verse 8, 4, which we haven't read, he just says you can walk according to the flesh. Or 8, 5, you can live according to the flesh. And he goes, and the result of that, Romans chapter 8, verse 8, he goes, because of that flesh, you'll never please God. So he goes, maybe there's a better way. Maybe instead of you living according to your own standard and your own flesh and your own plans of iniquity in which you are the king or the queen of your own domain, why don't you try something different? And so that's Paul's thought process. In verse 6, he continues on. He says, And for to set the mind of the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. He gives you the contradiction between the two. He goes, If you want to choose the life of the flesh which is contrary and opposed to the nature of God and his holiness, he goes, you just need to realize that it's going to bring about death. So he goes, there there is no good way for you to live in the flesh. He goes, you live in the flesh, it's contrary to the nature of God, and it will always bring death. So the result is the same every time. You choose your way, you're going to find yourself in a ditch. You choose your way, you're going to find yourself muddled and cloudy and confused, coping with different mechanisms to hopefully find peace and joy. Because you want to choose your way, you're going to continually look for things to satisfy you that bring forth a momentary but fleeting degree of happiness. And he goes, and the reason that you'll never find happiness is because in and of yourself, the flesh, there is no such thing as happiness. Because your flesh brings death. It is the law of nature and science. It is the law of how we were created and ultimately in our rebellion, it manifested itself in us. We were designed to have a relationship with the perfect Heavenly Father. When we went our own way, we, in opposition, chose death. But 
And you could underline or circle this but to set your mind on the Spirit, which is a new life in Christ. It brings life and peace. So whenever you see a Christian who would recognize the error of their former ways and in repentance acknowledge that they are sinful and wretched and need a Savior, you see a miracle occur right there in the Christian life. Because a person identifies with who they were in their sin and then they beg and they plead for the mercy and the kindness of God. And in His loving kindness and faithfulness, He meets us where we are and He regenerates us and gives us a new spirit. And when he does that, he renews the inner man and allows us now to wrestle between the two. We wrestle now in the flesh and the life in the spirit. Now, I would be lying to you and if I was sitting in this chair and say there are not times where I give in to my flesh or what I would call, in this sense, an old nature. But that's not how God intends me to live because he now lives and dwells in me. He desires for me to walk in a new nature, his nature, which is the spirit that the inner being would be renewed day by day, strengthened day by day through His power, by His Word, walking in the likeness of Christ. Paul writes to the church of Galatia, and he shows this struggle. The very one that Paul identifies with the church of Rome in Romans chapter 8, he lays out in a very clear way in Galatians chapter 5, a way that makes it very easy for me as an East Texas redneck to understand. And so here's what Paul says to the church of Galatia in Galatians chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there, but hold your spot in Romans 8 because we're coming right back to it. Now, Galatians 5 is all about walking in the Spirit, but we're going to pick up in verse 16 where Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So what Paul says in this way, he goes, there are two natures. There's the flesh, the old nature, and the spirit, the new nature. He goes, you don't want to desire, uh, gratify the desires of the old nature, the flesh. Then he goes, okay, here's, here's how you do that. You walk in the spirit. Then he tells you what the desires uh, of the flesh do, and that is that they compete with the desires of the spirit. So we already know that. Oil and water don't mix. Neither does the flesh and the spirit. Verse 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit against the flesh. And these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So this is natural. This is the way that God intended it. He goes, I redeemed you from your flesh in order to give you a new life in Christ. And even though you're still going to struggle in the flesh because your mortal body has not departed and you haven't departed from your body, which if you didn't know that, that shouldn't be new to you, okay? If you're here now, you're in your body. And if you're in your body, it means you are still got a corrupt nature. And if you've got a corrupt nature, even though you've been renewed from the inside, if you're a believer in Christ, you still wrestle. Now, what do you wrestle with? You wrestle with whether or not you're going to give in to the old corrupt nature, the flesh, or whether or not you're going to walk in the truth of God's Word and His Spirit. That's why Paul writes this in verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. He goes, you're not bound to the Old Testament rules anymore because you you can't keep the rules in and of yourself. And so he goes, what you do now is you live in the Spirit. And so as you walk in the Spirit, he goes, you you begin to, to do things different. Now then he says, and here are the works of the flesh. They're evident. So he goes, okay, you may wonder, well, what does a life in the flesh look like? What's life in the Spirit look like? Well, here's what life in the flesh looks like. So your sin nature. Sexual immorality is what he says, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. What is Paul saying? He goes, listen, if you continue in a habitual 
lifestyle of living for you and yourself. He goes, you are going to continue to do things that are contradictory to God's Spirit living in you. And he goes, and what you just need to know is that you're not fooled. He goes, you cannot look up at the end of your life and see no fruit. A life of, of sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. You can't look up in the end of your life. Your language hasn't changed. Your thoughts haven't changed. The way you treat people hasn't changed. And then say, well, I'm a believer in God. Now, I don't want to say this too strongly, but I want to make it clear. If you prayed a prayer when you were nine, but your life has not changed in the last 15 or 20 or 30 years, you are not a believer in Christ. That was pretty strong. But I want you to just understand, we, we don't mark our lives by a prayer. We mark our lives by the fruit of righteousness. How do you know I'm not living in the flesh? Well, you look at your fruit. What have I consistently done over the last handful of years? What have I consistently done over the last handful of decades? Paul says if you live in the Spirit, you're going to produce Spirit-like fruit, which is, he goes on and he says this in verse 22 and 23, he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things there is no law. Now, I'm not, I am not proposing perfection. What I am proposing, that if you're a believer in Christ, you are going to wage war with the old nature and the way that you desire to do it on your own and this new life in the Spirit. That there is going to be a continual battle. And listen, today, this morning, I dropped to my knees beside my bed and I prayed for you. And I prayed that God would give me strength despite my physical ailments to make very clear to you that the message of the gospel is that you eventually grow up and leave childish things behind. And, but even as I pray that prayer, I submitted to God that there are many ways that I am still a child. And God, I still need your help because there are many ways where I still struggle with self-control. And even we laughed and made a mockery of me and exercise, but the reality is it's an area where I still oftentimes concede and give in to the flesh. In my eating habits, I lack self-control. I could look at that one area of my life and I could say, I still have to be refined. I'm sure that I could take places like enmity and strife and jealousy. I could probably take fits of anger. I could probably use some work there. But the consistent pattern in my life, I pray, is a life that reflects the Spirit. And that's what you have to look at. Verse 24, Paul goes on, and look what he just says here in Galatians 5. He says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Friends, the point of this whole message is that at some point, as we embrace the gospel and the good news of Jesus and his kindness towards us in our lives, there is some point where we finally concede to his lordship in our lives and we crucify the old flesh. Lord, at some point, we plead and we beg and we ask God, Lord, with groaning and with tears and with pain, Lord, would you crucify this old man in me? And would you make me new? God, would you change my, 
my thought process. God, would you change the inner being of who I am? Lord, would you make me kind? Would you make me gentle? Would you help me to be more thoughtful? God, would you help me to leave fornication and lust behind? Lord, would you purify my eyes? God, would you make my heart to be like your heart? God, would you take this old stubborn heart of of stone and God, would you just make it a little bit more pliable? At some point, we go, God, change me. And we see the fruit of righteousness that comes forth from that. Friends, here's why you need to know that. It's because Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 as he continues, he just says, look, if you have the mind that's set on the flesh, it's hostile to God. That, I think, is huge. He says, "It, it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. He goes, if you are living in the flesh, meaning you're living with you on the throne of your own heart, he goes, you're not going to ever obey God's word. He goes, it's not in you. You can't do it. Which is the point of all of this. Verse 8, he says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. He goes, if you live a life in and of yourself and in the flesh, he goes, it's impossible for you to please God. Go to church, great. Sing some songs, fantastic. Drop a little money in the box, awesome. Do a kind deed here and there, great. But he goes, if you still live a life in the flesh, he goes, you are in hostility against God and you cannot keep his word, nor will you have a desire to. Now, when he uses the word hostile here, he's not saying, hey, you're angry towards God. He's not depicting a man who is flipping God off. That's not what he's depicting here. What he's depicting a man who, who merely says, God, I know that you have told me to go this way, but I'm choosing to go my own way. It's basically a man who says, I know what your priorities are, but I don't want your priorities. And you don't have to have a blatant disregard to, to set yourself up against God in hostility. You don't have to be this prideful, mean, domineering man. You don't have to be an atheist to set yourself up against God. All you have to be is a man or a woman who says, I know better, and my way is the way I'm going to take. And Paul says that type of life sets itself up in a way that lives in resistance and in the contrary nature to God's best way. But that's why Paul writes to the church of Rome and specifically here in this text to believers there. And he says this in verse 9, but you, you, who's he talking about? He's talking about people who have a new life in Christ and their inner being has been changed. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Who's he talking about? He's talking to anyone who has now put their faith in Christ and would say, I have a changed life. He says, and if you live in the Spirit, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. And he uses the word there, uh, okeo, which literally just means to inhabit. He goes, and anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But the question that I would have to ask you is this, is when, when did these believers, when, when did they possess this new Spirit? Like, when did that happen? What takes place? Have you ever thought about that? Like, how do I know that I'm no longer living in the flesh and hostility to God. How do I know? How do I say for certain? Like, how do I know without a shadow of a doubt that God lives in me? And not only that he lives in me, but that I'm now living in the spirit. How do I know? Well, obviously you can look at the fruit. You can see the contrast of what it looks like to live in the flesh. And you go, that, that's 
pretty rebellious. And then you can see the contrast of what it looks like to live in the fruit of righteousness and ultimately the fruit of the Spirit, which is contrasting different views. But I think Paul makes it even more clear if you study the Scriptures about what it looks like to live a life in the Spirit. And I would just tell you that as I read Ephesians, and we recently just kind of wrapped that up and we're moving on uh, to Philippians, um, what I would just tell you is that in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul makes it super clear. I'm going to show it to you um, here, and you can see it on the screen. You can also mark it. But he just says in Ephesians 1.13, he says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So he says, when you heard the gospel of truth, which by the way, today you're hearing the gospel of truth, when you believed in him, that's what Romans 10.13 says, that anyone who believes in the Lord shall be saved. You're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That means that he dwells you, seals you. That means that he protects you, covers you, begins the process of growing you towards maturity. Paul doesn't just stop there. In Ephesians chapter 3, he gives us another picture of what this looks like to be strengthened in the inner being. If we have been sealed by his righteousness, then what's it look like to grow in that? In Ephesians 3, 16 and 17, Paul says that according to the riches of his glory, that he, meaning Christ, may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love. Now, what's interesting is, is he says, okay, Christ dwells in your inner being. So he seals you for the day of redemption. Means that he goes, you're a part of the family of God. Then he indwells you. But what's interesting, Paul chooses a word differently here to the church of Ephesus than he did to the church of Rome. And I'll tell you, I think why. In the church of Rome, he just goes, hey, look, when you have a new life in Christ, God dwells within you. But specifically, when he's talking to the church of Ephesus, he goes further in telling us what it looks like to live in Christ and specifically for Christ to live in us. And he uses um, a word, kato oikeo. Now, the word in the Greek in Rome was just oikeo. Now, but there's a couple of different ones. There's pero oikeo or there's kato oikeo. Now, when you see pero oikeo, you're talking about someone who dwells, but it's for a time. So nomadic person. So think about Abraham in the Old Testament. They moved and it would be so he would dwell, then he would leave, and he would dwell again. That's the idea. But specifically, when Paul uses the word to the, the church in Ephesus, he uses the word katoikeo, which literally means to dwell or reside with permanence. The point is that if Christ renews you, sets up his inhabitants in your, in your house, in your life, the question is, do you think the king of the universe who created everything isn't going to recreate a few things in your life? Ladies, let me ask you a question. What is God's greatest gift to you? One of the greatest gifts that God has given ladies, maybe you're not walking in it, but it's to be the house despot. You pick out paint colors, you move furniture, you organize. That is a gift that God gave you. Now, there's a handful of us in men that were kind of weird. We got a little part of that. But ladies, Christ purposefully created you to be the house despot. Now, the reason I share that with you is because as you reorganize things in the house and you move and do walls and paint colors, it's the point that Christ wants to do the same thing in you. 
Kelly and I, the very first house uh, that we bought as a major remodel, um, we specifically bought it uh, from a guy who uh, was really in his late 70s, very early 80s. Um, I don't know exactly how old he was, but he was a hoarder. And we bought the house with a contingency that we would accept everything that was in the house and that we would clean it out. And the first time I saw it, Kelly was with me. I was like, hey, babe, you're not walking in there. I was like, if you walk in there, you're going to back out on the deal. Uh, you're not going to want to buy it. And so she's like, no, like, really? And I'm like, no, I'm serious. You're not walking in there. Because it was putrid. It stunk. It was nasty. Just gross. I mean, just, I, I can't even describe the scene. We bought it. It took us two weeks just to clean it out and fill dumpsters of stuff in there before we ever even got down to the floors. Nasty. And when we set up a home there, guess what we did? We started reorganizing. We even tore down a few walls, kind of reshaped a few things, made it our own. Listen, that's what it looks like for Christ to dwell in you. And the point is, if Christ dwells in you, how long is it going to take before the king of the universe reorganizes a few things? How long is it going to take before he gets into some of the dark, hidden chambers of your house and goes, you know what, we're going to clean that out? I mean, what about the closets that you're kind of keeping off guard? Like, See, the Paul's point is, no, life in the Spirit means change. And that's what I want you to realize, because that's what Christ has done. If we continue on in verse 10 of that same chapter, it says, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit of life because of righteousness, and if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. And this is really cool, and we'll kind of wrap up with this. Here's what Christ says. If Christ is in you, He's reorganizing the house, He's painting some rooms, He's changing a handful of things and the inner being, He goes, that's true, even though your body is dead because of sin. So he goes, listen, I get it. Your, your, your body is wasting away. And, and today, maybe as clear of a reminder to you and me is that our body is wasting away. And listen, do I desire for my physical body to be healed? Absolutely. I would love to walk without pain. That would be fantastic. But listen, can I just tell you that if God wanted to use a physical ailment to remind me of his strength and his sufficiency, then to, to God be the glory. And can I just tell you the one thing that I did learn, and I had a staff member, his name's Jose. One of the things he shared that just pricked my heart is Jose said, you know, oftentimes our, the least amount of dependence upon God is where we have great strengths. And I would say that probably one of my greatest strengths, at least in my mind, is that I think, you know what, I have the ability to speak. I have the ability to to get people to move. I have ability to do that. And then God, by moving a sofa, could render me physically enable in some ways to do some of the things that I think I'm gifted in. And what a reminder that I need his strength. See, that's what Paul is saying. He goes, guys, listen. If the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now listen, I want you to catch the point here. Here's what he's saying. He goes, we can, we can pray for healing in this life, and we should. We can des desire that, and we should. 
But we shouldn't desire that more than what Christ wants to do in our weakness. And what I want you to understand is this. Any healing that I receive now in my back is temporal. Y'all know that? It's fleeting. It won't last. And I think one of the things I would just encourage you in is this, is while we oftentimes pray for the healing of brothers and sisters, and we should, and we should desire that, we do need to know and reflect that all of it is temporal, that one day this body is going to give out, no matter how many times on earth God might would heal it before it does, finally. Now, the reason I share that with you is this, is because I don't want you to put your, your eyes on the wrong thing. See, the wrong thing is not to live till you're rich and you're old and, and this body just keeps on going. The goal is not to, to have as many surgeries to prolong this body as you can. That's not the goal. The goal is, is to realize that even though this body is giving away, that there is a God in heaven because he's, in, he's renewed our inner being that one day he's going to renew our outer being. So you might not know this, and this may be too much for your head to take at this point, but what I want you to realize is this, is the body that you now live in will not be your heavenly body. You're going to get a new one. And for some of us, we're like, oh, thank the Lord, right? <laughs> Don't focus too much on the outer body because it's wasting away. But that also means that we shouldn't grieve as those who have no hope when a body does waste away. And it's not your body, it's a body of someone you love. When it, when it wastes away, hey, we have hope. Why? Because of the promises of God, that he's already renewed the inner being. That's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 and 18. I'll close with this text. So we do not lose heart. Look, though our outer self, what is that? The flesh, the corruptible part of us is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Why do we not lose heart? Because if Christ lives in us, he's giving us everything we need through his word to live a life of faith and of godliness. And we can pursue him. And even though our bodies don't always fill up to it, the inner man, because we are new creations, should desire the things of God and we should live in them. And I pray that we would. Now, right there in your seat, I want to close with Psalm 107, probably because just through this week as I was reading and my heart was full, I came across this text and just reminded me of what our heart should do when we have a spirit of thankfulness. And when we do realize what Christ has done. And in that text, it's the text where it says, let the, um, let the um, redeemed of the Lord say so. And there was this old song back in the day, you know, that kind of came to mind, which kind of jogged my memory. I started kind of reading through Psalm 107. I just wanted to close with this. And maybe right there in your seat, you can read it with me. Or, it, or if you're like, I don't have it in front, just close your eyes and just listen to the words. But as we leave out of this place with frail, feeble bodies that are wasting away, may we leave out with full hearts. And may we just be reminded of God's faithfulness and his kindness to generations of those who love him and seek him. Psalm 107 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. 
whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. They were hungry and they were thirsty. Their souls fainted within them. And then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. And he led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. And let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Some sat in darkness, in the shadow of death. They were prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God. They spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down. With hard labor, they fell down with no one to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their time of trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and into the shadow of death, and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works for the children of man. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities, they suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. And he sent out his word, and he healed them, and he delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Verse 23 says, Some went down to the sea in the ships, doing business on great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded, and he raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to the heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled. They staggered like drunken men. They were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. And he made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. And let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love and his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. Friends, I don't know where you are. Maybe you'd say, you know what? I've been living my flesh for the last handful of months or years. Maybe you would know, like in your heart, that you've not been right where God wants you to be. Maybe you found yourself in an empty desert wasteland. Hungry, thirsty, tired, parched, tired of doing things in your own strength. Listen, you can, you can do lots of things, but when you do them in your own strength, it'll never work out. Today's the day. Maybe you cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, I need your strength and I need your help. Some of you have been a prisoner in your own affliction. You've been shackled and chained. You've spurned the counsel of others. People have pointed you the right way. But you said, I'm not doing it. May the Lord bring you low. May he crush you for the purpose of restoring you. Maybe you've suffered affliction. Maybe you've lacked any kind of nourishment. Maybe you've in some ways been embraced by the gates of death. May the Lord and the narrow way that leads to life embrace you. And may he deliver you from your own destruction. Maybe you've been tossed by the seas. Maybe you've been hurled to the heavens. Maybe you boasted gladly and proudly in your chest. Look at me. But then your ship came crashing down. 
and it brought you to your knees to the point where you'd say, Lord, I've put my belief and my trust in the wrong place. Friends, I don't know where it is that you put your trust, but I'll tell you, there is only one that is trustworthy. You can have all the horses and all the chariots in the world. You can have the greatest armies. You can have the biggest fleet of ships. But anything that allows you to live a life in rebellious nature, contrary to the Spirit of God, is hostile. And He desires that we would be His friend. And that we would be sons and daughters. And so I don't know where you are, but I will tell you this. All you have to do is say, God, I don't want to live a life of rebellion anymore. I acknowledge that my path and the rut I've been in is the wrong one. God, would you help me to submit to you? Lord, I trust you today. I'll follow you. Be Lord. Change me. Make me new. Humble my heart. I submit to the air of my ways. And I acknowledge that I am not a good driver of my life. I've been in ditches. I've had more wrecks than I can count. And I just submit to you, Lord, that in my slumber, I've been a fool. But God, would you awake the sleeper? Would you bring me out of my grave? And would you give me a new life in Christ? And would you help me to live in the Spirit? That's what it looks like. Father in heaven, thank you for my friends. I thank you, Lord, that in my weakness, they would see my frailty and they would just be reminded of their own. God, we are feeble and weak. We are confused without you. But do do I come before you this morning, Lord, and I just submit to you gladly with a full heart and a thankful spirit that, God, there are many of my friends today that maybe with unveiled and unfettered eyes that they would walk out and see clearly. I pray, Lord, that you would illuminate them to your light, to your truth. And, Lord, would you move us to be the kind of people you want us to be. Lord, would you help us to live and walk in your spirit and not gratify the desires of our flesh, which are hostile and contrary to the holy God in which we love and we sing to. God, we need your help. We're nothing without you, but we are thankful that in your great love and which you lavished upon us through your son, that everything in our life is yours because of your son, Jesus.